Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church, Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Father, thank you for our brother and our friend in Christ. Thank you for all that he's given for many years to Mosaic. We pray, Lord, for a timely word for us this evening as a church. I pray a word that would stir us, encourage us, challenge us. Push us out into what you have for us. Please open our hearts, Lord, to receive. And may we have eager ears to listen to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, everybody. It's just great to be with you guys. Really enjoy my day. And um, as I said, we, we, uh, we've had this really good year in the church. And your starting windows normally. <laughs> That's excellent. We've had this really, really good year in the church. And I thought, when that word came, I thought... I'll have some of that for myself, I'll have some of that for my family. And um, I tell you, fam- there's nothing like family life, is there, for, for bringing change. Children never give seminars or run training courses, but the amount of change they can bring to their parents is absolutely astonishing. You may not have realized that if you've, you've got parents. Actually, you were a tool sent by God to change them for the better. And... Um, I began to realize this quite early on. I remember an incident in our household where uh, pretty much every other mealtime something would get knocked over, you know, with with seven of us all competing for the food. uh, Something would always get knocked over. And uh, I was was doing tea for them and I I went out to the kitchen, came back in and um, the juice had been knocked over, a big jug of juice all been knocked over. And we we had a technique for that, which we practiced, obviously, quite often, where everyone would stand up and hold the tablecloth up like that because that would stop it going on the carpet. So I went out to get, you know, more baked beans or something, came back in, and they're all standing up like this. And I just went, you know, I was feeling grumpy and everything. And uh, my daughter, my eldest daughter, who could only have been 10, she said to me, Dad, she said, have more grace. It's only juice. And it was like, and uh, that was the beginning of something. And, you know, three teenage daughters, they have this way of cutting in, cutting right in. And I am, a, I am profoundly grateful to God for my family because of the effect it's, it's had on me, actually, uh, and the change it's brought to me. And it's been a really good year for us as a family. My uh, oldest son got married uh, last year. It happened to be the warmest October Saturday since records began. It always makes me think that since records began. When did it, records begin? Was it like the year before or something? But anyway, uh, my, my son got married. Uh, my elder daughter um, had a baby, so we have a grandson now uh, called Gus, uh, and that's really, really good news. And my youngest son went to university in London, so uh, we're, we're kind of empty nesters now. And uh, I think this is all right. Crackling away. I'm fine. You're all fine, aren't you? Excellent. And... Uh, the other really, really good thing we, we did this year, uh, last year, is we went on holiday in New Zealand. Uh, about seven years ago, we planted a church into New Zealand and uh, sent ten people from our church, including somebody I trained to lead it. And I've been going ever since I've been to New Zealand, like, I think five times in the last seven years. And if you think that's glamorous, you can think again. No, just, just imagine sitting where you are for 30 hours breathing the air in again and eating terrible meals and watching slightly boring films. 
That's what it means to go to New Zealand. And uh, I've been there so many times. You know, I'd only be, I'd only had one day off in that, and all that time, only had one day off, and seen a vineyard. You know, and I had no idea whether, that that New Zealand was such a beautiful country. Uh, but we went on holiday last year. I took my wife. There we are. Well, that's the Palora Sound. We stayed for two nights on a beach right down in, uh, in, by the sea. It was absolutely beautiful. And then on, on the way home, uh, we went diving, scuba diving in the Seychelles. Uh, the, the, the great thing about going to New Zealand for a holiday um, and for, to work is that everywhere is on the way home. So, oh, yeah, we're going to the Seychelles. It's on the way home. Because you go anywhere, it's on the way home. And... Um, for our 25th wedding anniversary, we learned to scuba dive. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Heather absolutely loves it. And we did that in the Seychelles in late November. It was absolutely marvelous. So it's been a good year for us. And uh, it's being a good year for, for you. And there they are. There they all are. Isn't that beautiful? Anyway, if you've got your Bibles, uh, Hebrews chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. Uh, we're going to read it on the screen. And uh, we're going to just read... Five verses out of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 10. So why don't you read this out loud with me? Are you happy to do that? Happy to read scripture with me? Let's, Let's go for it. Read this with me. It's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and you crowned him with glory and honor, and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever done anything radical in your life? Have you ever done anything radical in your life? And what I mean by radical is, have you ever stepped outside what's comfortable, stepped outside what's familiar, stepped outside what's normal, stepped outside what's expected? And you've gone off in a new direction in order to bring change to the world. Wave at me if you've done something radical in your life. Something, anything. There's a few hands going up. More of you need to be more radical. Hopefully by the end of this you will be. Now, sometimes radical actions are small ones. They don't need to be big actions to be radical. When I was... A kid, I was in the Cubs, and as part of our fundraising efforts, we were given a tube of Smarties. I don't know if they make tubes of Smarties now anymore, but when I was a kid, they made Smarties in tubes, and I was given a tube of Smarties. And they said to me, what you've got to do is when you eat one of these Smarties, or or if you give it to a friend or something, they're to give you some money, maybe a half penny, maybe a farthing. I mean, this is pre-1971, when I was seven, okay? When there was decimalization, when I was a kid, we had pence, shillings, and pounds. And the pence weren't just, you didn't have one pence or even half pence. You had half pence and quarter pences, farthings they called them. So the idea was that you, you ate a smart in, you put a little farthing in, you put a half penny in, all that kind of thing. 
Good idea. Problem for me was, I grew up in a house which thought sweets were of the devil. So, you know, having chocolate is like demonic. And so somebody gives me a whole tube of Smarties. It's like, man, heaven has come. And so I just ate them all. And that left me with a problem. Now, if I'd, if I'd been, you know, a little bit smarter, I would have thought about this. And I, thought, I would have just gone and bought another tube and replaced it and done the, done the fundraising thing. But for some reason, that never occurred to me. And, and I, I really I just didn't do anything. And so the, the day came when the, the cup master wanted the, the, the smarty tube back, now full of hateness and farthings and stuff. And I just didn't have anything. I just had an empty tube. And so in a radical moment, what I did was I took my grandmother's birthday present to me, which was 10 shillings. Okay, that's, that's 50 pence. I mean, man, you, you could buy a house for five pounds at the time. It was not quite that bad. But <laughs> I took this 10 shilling note and I put it in the tube, and I gave it back. And they were absolutely astonished. It was just a tiny little action, but actually quite radical for a seven-year-old to give his whole uh, birthday present away. And, you know, I became a Christian in my first year at university. And maybe you're here this, this evening, and you, and, and you have yet to give your life to Jesus. And that, that moment's drawing near, and you know it's drawing near. You wouldn't be here if you were not interested to some degree in Jesus and in what he's accomplished. Let me invite you today. Make today the day where you say yes to Jesus, where you give your life to him. And when you receive from him the gift of forgiveness and the gift of eternal life, and you become a new person. That's what a Christian is. Maybe that's for you today. I came to that day in university in my first year. And uh, in, the, in my second year, the, the Christian Union at the university asked me to organize their mission. Now that in itself is quite a radical action, I think, asking somebody who's only been a Christian in a year to organize a mission at the university. And that's the Students' Union at Newcastle. I mean, I didn't really know what a mission was. I had to go and read books on evangelism to work out what it all was. And I tell you that, I got absolutely hooked. I got absolutely thrilled. And then in, in the holiday, my brother invited me to go and stay with him. My, my brother was a, a, as about atheist as I am Christian. He was a kind of atheist evangelist for some time. He's, a, he's mellowed a bit now. Anyway, he invited me to go to stay with him, and he took me up to this concert in, the, in London at the Wigmore Hall. Now, my brother's quite classical, really. I'm, I'm, I'm more a Led Zeppelin man myself. And um, I spent, you know, two hours listening to an oboe and a clarinet playing. But it was an amazing two hours because God began to speak to me. And God began to tell me things we should do for this mission to the university. And I went home to my brothers and I went out the next day and I bought a little orange notebook and I wrote it all down. And that's basically how the mission happened. And one of the things that God said was, I want you to preach in the open air. Now, I'd read about that in the books. It sounded good. I thought, right, let's do that. And uh, so we, we went outside the students' union. We set up a stage. I got some friends to play some music. And then I preached. Now, I've never, never done it before. And in the run-up to that, two of my friends, two girls, decided to fast and pray for a week. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm one of the world's worst fasters. Have you ever tried fasting? I get to lunchtime. I'm, I, can't get, I can't go on any longer. I'm about to keel over. And, but uh, my friends did it for like a week. And I thought, it was radical. It was a small action, but it was a radical action. And we came to this day, and it was a beautiful sunny day, which is, you know, unusual in Newcastle. And uh, lots of people sitting outside. They, they, they came, they played their music. I got up and I preached. I preached for over half an hour. Over half an hour. And we had some friends who had come to help us, some other church leaders, and they were sitting with the people. And one of them said to me after, he said, Ian, normally when you do these things, you should only preach for like five minutes. That's normal. But you just went on and on and on. I said, but I kept looking around and everybody was listening. And it didn't matter that you went on and on. I didn't know whether to take it as a kind of criticism or compliment. But anyway... The thing was, why did that happen? Why did that event come together? Because two girls decided to take a small but radical action to fast and pray for a week. You see, being radical isn't, isn't even the same as taking big risks, okay? As a kid, I was 10 shillings poorer, but I still had somewhere to live and plenty to eat. Well, not plenty, but enough to eat. Those two girls, they lost a bit of weight and saved a bit of money, but like their lives were not in danger. See, to be radical, and we're going to see this in a minute, to be radical is to be sacrificial, but it's not necessarily the same as being a blatant risk taker. In fact, sometimes the most radical people are very thoughtful and very considered. They come at it after some considerable time of thinking things through. And being radical isn't the same as just reacting to things. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with Newton's cradle where the whole idea is you, you draw things back, you let them go, they come, come along, they swing in, they knock against something and they go swinging out. And it's just the kind of boom, boom, like that. Just action, reaction. Doesn't bring any change. I mean, after you've watched Newton's Cradle for like a second, it's boring. <laughs> it's, it's, it doesn't change anything. But you know, you'd be amazed how much of day-to-day life is like that. It's just action, reaction, action, reaction. Nothing really changes. You know, we can see this in, in, in church. We kind of, we, sometimes we knock into each other and if someone upsets you or somebody offends you, you just react back, you retreat back in pain or withdraw. If someone doesn't listen to you, you just react away and kind of uh, not speaking. It's just action, reaction. And we can see that on a global scale as well. You know, so much violence in our world. But when you dig underneath it, you find it's just a reactive violence to other violence. Nothing is changing. And being a radical is to not just be a reactor, but to go off in a new direction that brings change. Let me ask you this question. How many of you want to bring change 
to a broken, dying, dark world. Just waved like tentatively at me. Come on, how many of you want to bring, you want to bring change to this world? This is Kabul. I was there in 2008. We were exploring the possibilities of sending a team to that country. We still want to do that. 25% of children under the age of five die in that country. One in four children die before they reach the age of five. 60% of women cannot read or write. And those two facts are linked, obviously. And you can replicate that kind of statistic all over the place. God knows we need to bring change to this dying, broken world. How radical are you willing to be? That's my question. How radical are you willing to be to do something good in this world? A little bit. You know, when you're radical, you're in good company because God is radical. God is radical. God wants to bring change. I don't know if you've read Isaiah 61 recently. It's a great prophetic promise about what God is going to do in the world. And when Jesus begins his work of preaching about the kingdom and healing the sick and delivering people from demons... He uses this chapter as his manifesto. He stops being a, a, a person who's working for his living, as a kitchen fitter, and he goes out to announce the kingdom of God. And he says, like, this is what God wants. This is what I'm going to do. And he uses Isaiah 61 as a kind of manifesto. I tell you, it's very, very radical, this agenda. It's good news to those who are poor. It's healing to those who are broken. It's relief to those who are trapped. It's beauty to those who feel burnt out. It's gladness to those who are grieving. And those who feel like giving up are going to be filled up with praise instead. And those who feel they've lost everything and everything's been destroyed, they will begin to rebuild. And those who feel that everything has gone, they will be given new dignity and a new inheritance. It's a very radical agenda. It's a change-making agenda that Jesus embarks upon. And if you might be here this evening and you feel broken or impoverished, or trapped into some addictive behavior, or maybe just even sad. Jesus wants to get hold of your life and save you. Jesus wants to bring change into all those situations. That is his heart. God is radical. He's not just swinging against everything either. He's not just objecting to everything. God has taken radical action in Jesus. He's gone off in a new and surprising direction. And that's what the writer of this letter to the Hebrews has been going on about in those verses that we have just read. You see, 
all the way through the first two chapters of, of the letters to the Hebrews, the writer keeps returning to his theme about how Jesus is higher than the angels. He just says it again and again. He's dealing with this repeatedly. Jesus is higher than the angels. In fact, Jesus is so much higher than the angels that angels worship him. So here's a good example of that. Verse 6 of chapter 1, he says this, And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. He keeps saying this. He referred to it in the verses we read. And you think, why does he need to do that? Why why are the church grappling with this issue about where Jesus fits in, about the angels and how he's higher than the angels? I mean, that's not, that's not our problem, is it? Has anyone got that in their heads thinking, man, I've been thinking about that all week. Is Jesus higher than the angels? Has anybody been thinking about that all week? No, no, we're culturally and historically a long way from this church. But for them it was a really big deal. And you think, why is that? And the answer is actually very simple. The answer is because they were thinking about God the way they used to think before they became Christians. Their view of God was there before they became Christians. They become believers in Jesus, and a lot of what they used to think kind of is carried on. Now, let me tell you, we all do this. We all do this, actually. And let me give you an example I'm, I'm going to use America. Is, any, is anyone from America here? Phew, that's lucky. They've all left in protest after this morning. But um, this is a caricature, okay? And I'm using America because it's a more entrepreneurial culture than ours. But just imagine if you are a, a wealthy, hard-working, diligent, probably Tea Party voting American. And you become a Christian. Believe in Jesus. Well, the way you think about God is this. You think about God as someone who rewards people who work hard. Someone who blesses your efforts. God is the God who wants you to work hard, be diligent, succeed in your work, succeed in your business. And that's how your family will be provided for. That's how people think about God. But just imagine if you're coming from a completely different place in America. Imagine you're coming from a much poorer, oppressed place. And there are plenty of Americans who are suffering great poverty right now. And a great deal of oppression. And imagine you were in that background and that was your family and you became a Christian. Well then... You'll be thinking about God as the God who sets people free. The God who gets rid of the oppressors. The God who raises up the poor. The God who deals with the rich who are oppressing the poor so the poor can rise up. That's the kind of God you'll be thinking about. And actually, it takes the diligent, hard-working, we've got to be blessed by God through our work, It takes them an awfully long time sometimes to connect to the reality that God has some very nasty, subversive, left-wing views, actually. (laughs) He does. And if you're coming from the background of, let's deal with the rich so the poor can be set free. Hallelujah! It takes them a while to, to work out that 
actually God does want you to be diligent at work. And God does bless that and wants to provide for you and your family through that means. You see, where you've come from often colors what you think about God. And this church is exactly the same. This church is exactly like that. You see, this letter was written to people who were struggling to see where Jesus fitted in to their understanding of God. And the readers of this letter had a very, very high view of God. We call them monotheists. They believed in the one true, holy creator God. Now that's very familiar to us, isn't it? Who here believes in the one true, holy creator God? Yeah, it, it's like normal now. And even if you're an atheist in our society, the thing you're objecting to is the one God. That's what you're against. See, one God is now kind of normal in our thinking. But in these people's day, the government, the intellectuals, and the media didn't believe in one God. They believed in many gods. So the Roman government, the Greek intellectuals, and their equivalent of the Daily Mail were all polytheistic. And they believed in the one God against the flow, against the odds, against the culture. So they're not going to give it up. It's very, very important to them. And, God bless them, they were right about that. There is just one holy, unique, eternal creator God. They were right. But what it did was it gave them a bit of a headache when it came to Jesus. Because their view of the world was this. God is high, holy, and separate. Okay. God isn't where we are. God lives where he lives. God exists completely away from where we are. God lives in somewhere high and holy and eternal and spiritual. He's not where we are. But of course, that gives God a bit of a problem. Okay. The problem is, how does God communicate with people? How does God touch people's lives. He, he's, he's living separately. He's living in the, in the high, holy, eternalness. And uh, we're, we're not there. Okay, so how does God do that? Well, the answer is he sends angels. It's the angels that come. The angels come with the word of God, the power of God. It's the angels that bring God to people. Because God's separate. God's in the high and the holy and the separate place. He's not where we are. But you see, for Moses, for Gideon, for Elijah, for Daniel, for Ezekiel, for Abraham, God came and spoke to them. God came with power. How does he do that? Sends the angels. It's the angel that comes to Gideon. It's the angel that comes to Moses with the presence and the power of God. Hallelujah. <laughs> that was their view. And actually what the writer of the Hebrews does, all the way through chapters 1 and 2, is he keeps blowing their minds by quoting the Old Testament scripture to argue the case that Jesus fits both God and and man. 
And this is just very, very alarming. He does it in what the bit we've read by quoting Psalm 8, that the one true, high and holy or powerful eternal God has not sent an angel this time. He's come himself as the Son of Man. Hebrews 2 verse 5 says this, He was made the Son of Man a little lower than the angels. And this has to be the most extraordinary thing about God. That God, eternal, creator, holy God, who lives forever in his eternal dwelling, in Christ came himself and lived among us and was found in appearance as a man to the point where he sits among us. God sitting among us. Man. That's amazing, isn't it? That makes God the ultimate radical. I don't know whether you would have done that if you were God. Would you have done that if you were God? Yes, he's saying. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) We'll check in a few things at the end of the message. God came. He left all that. And he came in this new and surprising direction to be a real man. And he wasn't a superman, like with special powers. No, no, no. God entered fully into the life of humanity. Now that sets up all kinds of theological problems, and the answer to that is Steve. We haven't got time to explain all that, but that's what God has done. The Creator has entered into creation. The Eternal has entered into time. The Spiritual has entered into the physical. The Holy has entered into the darkness. This is an astonishing move which makes God the ultimate radical. And just to say a few things about that, number one, it's totally deliberate. It's totally deliberate. God always intended to do this. He was not taken by surprise with the problem of sin and rebellion. God did not wake up one morning and think, oh, blimey, there's sin, what shall we do? I don't know what to do. God always knew and always intended that Christ would come as an offering for sin for, to save you. It's deep in the nature of God to be radical. Number two, it's hugely sacrificial. I think you can see that. God left his world and embraced our nature. He embraced it fully. And like us, his life ends in death. He tastes death. And not just for himself, not just his death. He embraces death for you so that you can receive life. He takes it 
on for you. It's hugely sacrificial. Now we're coming up to an offering in just a few minutes time you're going to come forward and put some envelopes in these very nice tasteful Ikea buckets. We're sponsoring the event. <laughs> I mean just, just try and add that one up a bit. You know, incarnation from heaven to earth and writing a check. Ah. Hugely sacrificial from God, showing us his true nature. Another thing to say about it is it's utterly vulnerable. You know, Jesus had no political connections, he had no army, he had no organization, he had no media support, he had little money. All he had really was his family and his friends. And when Jesus changed from working for his living to being this traveling teacher, he had some women who backed him financially. And at the time, in his culture, that would have seen as being very weak. Now, I'm not saying that's right, and I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just telling you what it was like. In first century Palestinian times, if the women backed you, you weren't worth backing. Just hear me again on that. I I don't agree with that. I'm just telling you that's how how it was looked at. And in Luke, it says... Women gave money so Jesus could do his ministry. And all the blokes would be sitting there thinking, Phew, that's, that's weak. Jesus lived a life of vulnerability and, and, and when he was rejected and died, there was no one to protect him. But the other thing to say about it is it's wonderfully exciting. It's wonderfully exciting because of this God made man and all that sacrifice and vulnerability. That man ends up in charge of everything. And that's the other thing this, the writer of the Hebrews is saying. It isn't that just that God becomes man, it's that man enters into all that God has and rules the cosmos. Read this with me. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This vulnerable, sacrificial, God-made man is raised to the place of glory and honor. The guy who's in charge of the cosmos is this kind of radical man. And that is extremely exciting to me. You know, the good news is that Jesus is in charge. And we don't see everything yet subject to him. We live in this tension of the overlap. One day everything will be the way Jesus wants it to be. One day everything will line up with this radical heart of God. And my advice to you, in fact my appeal to you is, line up today. Line up now. Line up with Jesus now. Because the day is coming, coming quick, when everything will anyway. The challenging news is that Jesus wants you to be like him. 
Is that your heart? Do you want to be like Jesus? Who wants to be like Jesus? It's a, it's a, it's a trick question, obviously. <laughs> oh, yes, I'm, I'm a Christian. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. Of course you want to be like Jesus. Wow. That means being radical. That's what it means to be like Jesus. It means taking on this radicalness, taking on this deliberate sacrifice, taking on this vulnerability. Jesus is looking for people who are willing to be radical. He's looking for people who will reimagine what the future could be like and are prepared to sacrifice in order to arrive there. Is that you? Yes. A little bit. Will you do something to make the future good? That's my question. Will you be a radical like God in order to bring change to a dying, broken, dead world? Will you? Well, let's, let's make that practical, shall we? For the two of you who are going to do that. <laughs> What's that actually going to mean? Well, I want to suggest three things to you tonight. Number one, it means radical giving. Radical giving. For your church to fulfill its vision to reach this city and plant churches across the nation and to the nations, it will never happen without radical giving from you. In fact, why don't you turn to the person next to you and tell them, the vision of this church will not be fulfilled without radical giving from you. And let me remind you that when you give, when you give in just a few minutes' time, and when you give next week, and when you give next month, and when you give next year, and when you give even more the year after that, you're not giving to the leaders. You do realize that. You're giving to God. Now, they have an accountability to God as to how this money gets spent. They are responsible. They have to steward that. And God will hold them to account for that. But your responsibility is to give to God. It's God's kingdom. It's God's church. It's God's mission. And in my experience, my long experience now, as a pastor, the money test is infallible. If you want to know what kind of person you are and what you really value, read your bank statements and your credit card bill. That will tell you like nothing else what matters to you and what you really believe in. Now, I have a slight problem with obsessiveness. I know this, and uh, at the moment I'm closed to help. (laughs) Every month I do our family accounts. I download all our bank statements and all our credit card statements into an Excel file of my own creation, and I I apportion all of it into 85 separate categories, which then must balance exactly. I won't even tolerate a penny. It's got to balance. 
I do this to relax. <laughs> now, I'm not going to show you our family accounts, although I do have them going right back to when we were first married. But our accounts tell you what I really value. Our accounts tell you that we love our children. I have three children currently going through university. Thousands of pounds mysteriously go out from my bank <laughs> to my children. Thousands. Why does that happen? Because we love our children. Our accounts tell you that I don't drink much wine, but the wine I drink is very good. <laughs> and expensive. Our accounts tell you that Heather and I love our church and love what God is doing through our church. Now, it's a sad fact to tell you that not every pastor and church leader can say that, but I can say that. And our accounts show that. Unashamedly, tens of thousands of pounds go out to what God is doing through our church. Because we love it. What kind of person are you? Now, I don't think you would fight me if I said to you, the Bible tells us that we should be good parents. Anybody want to fight me on that one? Oh, no, 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 no. The Bible says be lazy, self-indulgent, careless parents. Anyone want to say that? No, your Bible knowledge is good. <laughs> Anybody want to fight me on... That the, when I say the Bible says you should tell the truth in all circumstances, that what you do should be what you say, and that who you are in the bedroom, the dining room, uh, in the, at work and in the church should be the same, and that you should tell the truth when asked things. Anybody want to fight me on that? No, 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 no. The Bible says we should lie and cheat and, and, and deceive people. Anyone going to fight me on that one? No, your Bible knowledge is very good. Now, what if I said to you that when it comes to sacrificial giving, the place the Bible tells us to begin is a tenth of everything? What are you going to do on that one? Who's going to take me on on that one? I will, if you like. <laughs> That's good. And I bet you there's loads more who are thinking that but never said it. We can have a conversation afterwards. It is my firm conviction, and I obviously have an awful lot of stuff that I can bring in behind that, otherwise I wouldn't be saying it, that actually the Bible says that when you're thinking about finances, the place to begin is with a tenth of everything. Now let's just check the maths. If you were earning £2,000 in a month, what's the tenth? 200. Give that man a clap. Got that clear? If you were earning £3,000 in the month, what would the tenth be? 300. 300. Oh, you've got the maths clear. We understand each other. You say to me, Ian, you don't understand. House prices are so high, the economy is so poor, I've got so many bills. Well, actually, I do understand. I've lived in the northeast of England 
for 34 years through three recessions. I do understand. But let me say this to you. Do not lose your vision of how much God sacrificed for you. Do not lose touch with the reality of how much God gave of himself for you. And let that reality touch down on the whole area of your finance. Otherwise, what are you really saying? That the God who blessed you with all this already, who gave you the ability to earn if you earn? Was it you? It was God who gave you financial backing from your parents if you're getting financial backing from your parents. Was it you? It was God who's blessed you. Are you saying, oh no, this is all my money actually. Oh yeah, I might, I might give God a little tip. I might, give him a, I might give him a little few tokens. But this is my money. Is that the heart of God? Did God think that for you in Christ? I don't think so. And for your church to reach its potential in God, which is significant, it, it will require radical giving from you in response to a radical God who gave everything for you. Number two, you don't have to invite me back anymore, you see, this is good. If you don't like that, I don't have to come back. And number two, you will need to be radical in prayer. For your church to move into its vision, for you to move into all God's have for you, it will require radical prayer. Now, it's good to have vision. It's good to have some strategy. It's very impressive how devoted you are to mission to your city. But the inescapable truth is this that when the kingdom comes, it's God who works. And that means prayer. It's good to know where you're going. It's good to have thought about how to get there. But actually, for the vision of the church to be fulfilled, for your mission to be fulfilled, God must work. And when you embark on a great adventure in God, which is what you are now doing, the next phase of your great adventure in God... You, you reach this place where you learn painfully that unless God works, it won't happen. Who's learned that already? Well, you're going to learn it again. And more of you are going to learn it. When you actually do step out of the comfortable, the familiar, the normal and expected and start being radical for God and go on an adventure for God... You enter the arena where only God working will make it happen. And that can be quite painful for a while. Because God sometimes takes the time to remind us of that reality through our own weakness before he moves. But actually for this city to be reached, God must work. While we were in New Zealand, my wife read, reread a whole series of books by an author called Isabel Kuhn. Has anybody read it? Isabel Kuhn? She's a, bit, she's a bit dated now. Well worth reading. Isabel Kuhn and her husband were missionaries in a revival amongst the Lisu tribes in China. Amazing things happened around them. 
She says this in her book, I think quoting Hudson Taylor, she says, we move men through God by prayer. That's how it works. We move men through God by prayer. And some of you are going to need to get very devoted to prayer. Some of you are going to be called to that as your main contribution, that you will seek the face of God to come to Leeds and come to this nation. And all of you need to grow in faith for persistent prayer for God to work. What's Jesus doing right now? He's, he's at the longest running prayer meeting ever. Jesus has been raised to the right hand of God to rule and to reign. How does he express his rule? He's praying for you right now. He's praying for you. He's praying for you. It's a most vital work. You want to join the radical Jesus? Get into prayer. And lastly, what does it mean for you? It's time for radical relationships. What you're doing is you're spreading out across the city. You're spreading out the love that you have further into the communities that you are trying to reach. You're lengthening your relationships. You're lengthening and spreading out the tent of the love of God that's here. And that will create tension. That will create uncertainty. There'll be temptation to disengage. There'll be longer lines of communication. If this is going to work, you will need to love each other more, much deeper. And for some of you, you're still on the place of looking in rather than being part of. And God is calling you this evening to jump into the radical adventure this church is on and that means connecting in real love for some of the people that are here. You do know that that's how the church is built, don't you? There are some gatherings we need to gather to and there are some tasks we need to attend to but the way the church is built is through people joining in love for each other and holding to those relationships and creating a place of deep relationship to which the lost can be added and discipled. Without love, Paul says, you've got nothing. Or a clanging gong. Nothing. But you know, that requires a radical step, doesn't it? To step towards people, to engage with them, to embrace them. That requires a radical step. You know, Jesus is a radical. He took a long-awaited decision to appear on the earth so he could go to the cross for you. He gave his all so that you could have eternal life. God is radical. The church was birth radical. This church itself was birth radical. God wants you to be a radical people. He wants you to offer your whole life to him and hold nothing back. And this is my question. Are you up for that?
Are you up for that? Are you up for that? Now the band are going to come back. We're going to sing. We're going to take this opportunity to say, God, we want this church to grow. We want these people we're blessing to be blessed. We don't want to live in this safe, predictable world where we hold everything to ourselves. We want to be radical and give because that's your heart and that's your life. And if that's what you want to do, why don't you join me in in standing with me? reach out your hands to God Jesus we we love you we love your heart we love what you've done we say Lord would you please come to us and change us. Lord, where we're stuck in places of safety, God, get us out of that into adventure. Where we're holding on to things in order to feel secure somehow, we say, God, free us from that need and that fear and release us to a life of faith a life of giving of ourselves to each other and to you. Where we don't really trust you for money. Where we don't really believe in your ability to bless us. And so we don't give. Or if we do give, we just give the smallest amount we say God give us the heart of Jesus soften our hard hearts Lord free us from our our fears that grip us and give us faith and trust and peace and freedom Lord we know that unless you work no one will be saved we know that Lord and we say Lord please forgive us for being cold and indifferent in prayer Please forgive us for not holding the needs of the city before you. And please release 
a spirit of intercession. Please release a desire in us for the kingdom to come and the love of God to fill this city and touch our friends. And please help us, God, in all our weakness, in all our inability to be radical people who follow Jesus. Pray these things in your name, Lord.